Thank you, Lord, for another opportunity to stand in this sacred place, preach to many of these same people that I have preached for over three decades. I thank you, O Lord, that your word is fresh, your word is applicable, it's relevant, it changes people, it changes our attitudes, it changes our mindset. Lord, I pray that during this next few minutes of the preaching event, that our minds would be keen and focused, and that our spiritual ears would be attentive to what the Spirit of God has to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Amen. Last week we preached about a God who supplies all of our needs. We preached about a little lady in 1 Kings chapter 17 who had a a need. She would reached the end of her road. She was at the point where she really needed God to do something for her. But God had given her an assignment. He had said to her that I'm going to send a prophet over and you're to take care of him. Though she realized, I don't have a lot to take care of myself. I can't take care of my child. I can't can't really take care of my own needs. And you're going to send somebody for me to take care of? And the Bible said when Elijah walked up, she was gathering two sticks. And that he asked her, he said, what are you doing? She said, I'm gathering two sticks that I might go inside and make a cake for myself and one for my son, and then we're going to die. What pessimism. What a negative viewpoint she had. And to add to that, the prophet said, make me a cake first. Wow. She said, I don't have in the house but just a handful of meal. I don't have in the house but just a couple of drops of oil in a cruise, but at thy word, come on somebody, but at thy word I will do as thou hast asked. You say, well, pastor, wasn't that man of God doing something very mean to take the last thing that little woman had? No, he realized that when you exhaust yourself, then the opportunity arises for God to fill the vacancy and supply what you needed temporarily, God supplies permanently. Amen. God put something in her cruise and something in her meal barrel that wouldn't wear out, it wouldn't run out, it wouldn't exhaust itself. It would always be there when she needed it. Amen. You see, sometimes we overlook things in our life that God wants to use. We consider things as insignificant and little and not worth very much. And we made that point, you know, last, last week. You, you're, you're going the wrong way when you account what God has given to you as nothing. When you take what God has given you, five loaves and two fishes, and say, but what is that? And throw it out the window as if God can't multiply and God can't use small things. God can take your littleness and the things that are insignificant and the things you overlook and bring about a great miracle in his 
uh, way of doing things. God has a will and a purpose for all of us. And his will is not for you to constantly be in trouble. His will is not for you constantly to be needy and constantly be sad and grief-stricken and sorrowful. No, God, God wants you to have a good life. God wants you to be, I think the Roman uh, verses, be in good health and prosper. God wants you to prosper. God wants you to be in good health. God is for you, not against you. The plans he has for you are good plans. God wants you to experience good things. We talked about those two sticks and how that when they were joined together, they formed a cross. The cross inserted into your situation can change things. You remember over at the springs at Harmath when Elisha went over to those springs and the Bible said Jericho is a good place, but the water is not. The water is undrinkable. The water is bitter. Come on, somebody. Bitter, bitter, and we can't use it. It's refreshing and all, and it's pleasant to look at. The spring is plenteous, but we can't use it because it's bitter. You know, usefulness runs out when bitterness takes over. Usefulness usually but gets shelved somewhere when bitterness. Bitterness has a way of paralyzing its victims. Bitterness has a way of disqualifying and rendering ineligible people who are suffering from that affliction of bitterness. Bitterness is just one step from the seed of the scorner, you know. And the Bible said that the, the man that delights in the word of God, he sitteth not in the seat of the scorner. He's not that person that, that sees fault in everybody else and finds something wrong with everything else. But you see, when you insert that Elisha went and got a beam. He didn't take the two. He took one. And he inserted that wood into the place. And the Bible said he spoke a word. And he said, these waters are going to be healed from this day forward. Wow. You see, when you insert the cross into our emotional mindset, then something happens that's of a purging kind of a way. It's of a cleansing nature. There's cleansing and there's freedom that is given to us at the cross of the Lord Jesus. The meal represents the word of God. The word of God. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. When you preach Jesus, you're preaching about bread. Did you know that Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus, Bethlehem, Lehem means bread. And Bet means house of. So Bethlehem literally means the house of bread, the home of bread. Who said, I am the bread? Jesus. Where was he born? In the house of bread. You'll get this in a minute. The bread, meal represents bread. Hey, the greatest weapon you've got is the word of God. The greatest warding off evil is the word of God. The best cure for what ails you is the word of God. It will lift your spirits when you're down. It will shed light upon your path when you lost direction. It will give you energy and strength when you feel weak and undone. The Word of God is, is a living, quick, it's sharp. It cuts, it does its work. It's two-edged. It cuts away things that don't need to be there and it heals up wounds that are, have appeared in your spiritual life. The Word of God is good for you. I said the Word of God is good for you. You can read so many times, and they preached the word, and the number of disciples was multiplied. You can read the book of Acts. It always follows the word. Acts 2.41, then they that gladly heard the word 
were baptized, and the number of them was about 3,000 souls. The Word of God is great. What is oil symbolic of? It's symbolic of the Holy Spirit. So you take that, those ingredients, you take the, the cross of Calvary and the Word of God and the Holy Spirit's anointing, and brother, you've got a recipe for V-I-C-T-O-R-Y. You've got a recipe that'll bring you deliverance and bring you healing at the cross. It's where this all comes together in God's wonderful plan of redemption. I love the fact that the cross is God's remedy for whatever is wrong with us. God is in the middle of our something. Everybody came to church today with something. Everybody came in those doors and took their seat with something. Something. Well, I want to tell you, God is in the middle of your something. The Bible didn't say after we make it through all things. It says in all things. We are made more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. That sacrificial offering is available to us in the midst of it all, I sing sometimes. In the midst of it all. I found hope that will never let me down. In the midst of it all, Jesus by me stood tall. Stood tall. And in him I stand complete in the midst of it all. Not after I've got through it, but while I'm going through it. In all things we're made more than conquerors. He's in the middle of our, our dilemma. He's present in our, our sorrow. He's present and here with us while we're feeling the pain, while we're struggling with the difficulty, while we're fearful and where we're frightful and where we're grief-stricken, he's right there with us. He doesn't leave us at those times. He goes with us in every one of those situations. The Holy Spirit is a, an omnipresent comforter that never leaves us. And the Bible said that he may abide with you forever. He's with you over there on the job, Gary, while you're working. He's with you, Michael, when you're driving down the road. He's with you at the workplace. He's with you on the golf course. He's with you wherever you go. The Holy Spirit goes with you everywhere you go. Everywhere you go, so be careful. I said be careful how you treat this guest that is in our life that's called the Holy Spirit. Don't take him somewhere that he wouldn't be comfortable at. Don't get him in a conversation that he wouldn't want to participate in. Come on, somebody. Don't get him in obligated in a situation that he don't want to be obligated. Come on, somebody. If he's in your life and he's the guest and you're the host, then you need to treat the Holy Spirit as if he's a person that's living inside you. The Bible said he is in us. You're the temple of the living God. Out of your innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And this spake he of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is guest in our house. <laughs> Hallelujah. And as a guest in our house, he never leaves us and he never forsakes us. He goes with you to the funeral home. He goes with you to the emergency room. He goes with you to Cancer Centers of America. He goes with you wherever you go. He is with you. He's with you when you take your seat in that banker's office. Come on, somebody. He's with you everywhere you go. He's with you when you find yourself sitting across the desk from a lawyer. 
He goes with you everywhere you go. He doesn't leave you. He doesn't forsake you. He said he'll go with you all of the way. And I'm so thankful it's like that, aren't you? That when the storm comes, he's still there. So we wonder sometimes about why Jesus would leave 99 and go out and look for the one. We wonder sometimes in Matthew's gospel when Jesus sent them down to the ship and instructed them to go to the other side of the lake while he went into the mountain to pray. And as they sailed, a storm came upon the lake and their lives were in jeopardy. Hold it, Pastor. You mean, you mean to tell me that Jesus sent them into a storm? If Jesus knows all things, if nothing, I say to you sometimes, does it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurs to him? Nothing takes him by surprise. He knew the storm was on the lake. He knew all about the difficulty that they were about to go through. And he sent them out on that lake that became an inferno and a turbulent chaos. And the Bible said while he was praying, he saw them. You know, God never loses sight of where you are. He saw them and saw that their lives were in danger and that their lives were in peril. And the Bible said, and he went to them walking on the sea. You mean Jesus will do incredible, miraculous things to get to me when I'm in trouble? Yes. And the Bible said he was walking by and they said, who is that? Who is that? That's a ghost. And brother, they sure lost it then. And Jesus cried out and he said, be not afraid. It is I. It's me. Isn't it something that the Lord has to tell us who he is? That, that we've got our eyes and our minds so focused on the turmoil and the chaos that's going on around us that we don't really recognize that he's with us and in our presence and, and standing by us and going through the storm with us? Sometimes we, we wonder and expositors really struggle with some of those, those passages. But I want to tell you there are some things that are intended for us to endure. Some things we go through are there to teach us lessons that we can never learn. As Andre Crouch's song says, if I never had a problem, I wouldn't know God could solve it. If I never had a difficulty, I wouldn't know that God would see me through. If I never experienced hardship and, and things of that nature in this life, I wouldn't know that God was the answer that he could bring me through those difficulties in my life. You know, sometimes we need to celebrate our progress as we go on to that place where he's taking us. We're all on a journey. When God said, be ye perfect as he is perfect, what did he mean by that? Did he mean for me to live some unattainable life somewhere, some, some sinless state? No, that's not what he's talking about. 
The word perfect there means whole. Means lack, not lacking. Not lacking. Well, for me to be not lacking, I'm in pursuit of that place, which is the Bible says the perfect will of God. Which is your only your reasonable service. Present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God. Ask yourself, has God got me? I hear so many times, do I have God? Has God got you? Have you been sacrificed yet? Have you died out to self? The Bible said, if any man will come after me, Jesus said this, let him deny himself, take up the cross, and follow me. Have you made that sacrifice yet? Have you ever turned all of your gifts and your talents and your abilities and your energy over to God and made them available for Him to use? Have you reached that place where you can say, my life is hid with God in Christ? Have you reached that place when you said to God, I have died out to myself, not my will, thine be done? Well, I want to tell you something. There's two ways of looking at that. We teach in our declaration of faith that we believe in sanctification, subsequent to cleansing, and that it's a definite work of grace. There's another way of explaining that, is that it's a progressive thing. There is a work of grace, according to John Wesley and the Methodist preaching that we heard so many years that brought about the holiness movement. Yes, Methodists were the ones that brought about the holiness movement. That's right. Holiness is not Pentecost, but Pentecost is blessed by holiness. And they accompany one another and they, they go together. But I want to tell you that perfect will of God, achieving the perfect will of God for your life is a journey. It's a maturing that you embark upon. I, I want to be, we, we used to testify, I want to be all that God wants me to be. Have you heard old timers talk about that? I've heard them talk about the journey. We are on a journey to a blessed country. We used to sing, right? land of perfect day. Wow, that's old as the hills. You probably never heard of that song. There's a place that God wants us to get that he's working with every one of us. And the book of Galatians says he won't take his hand off of us until he finishes the work that he began in us. So then God has this intentional will for our lives. Every one of us are purposeful. Every one of us, God has a design and a purpose and a plan just for you. Can you believe that in God's card catalog, he pulls out the drawer and pulls your name out and there is a will of God for Natalie. There's a will of God for Mark Green. There's a will of God, a, what God is wanting you to be, the picture, the sculpture the, of what God is chipping away at trying to find that image for your life. And oh, are we ever busy working on it. So things you thought were injurious and painful and hard and grievous was just a chip away at something that didn't belong there.
You know, the rock of which the sculpture of David is created was for many years it was it was an object that just they couldn't see it. And nobody could no sculpt several sculptors worked on it, but they quit. They'd get to a certain point working on that sculpture of David and they they couldn't get it. They they just couldn't couldn't see it. And finally Michelangelo was commissioned to finish the sculpture, the statue of David. And the rock had problems. The rock had many different uh, uh, variances in it, and it was a problematical thing. But finally, Michelangelo pulled the drape off and exposed his rendering of David. It's priceless. Billions and billions couldn't buy it now. And when I asked, how did you solve that problem? He said, I just chipped away at everything that wasn't David. I just chipped away at everything that wasn't David, and what was left is this statue. Isn't that what God does for, in all of our lives? He just chips away at what isn't Jerry. He just chips away at what isn't Susan. He just chips away at whatever isn't Linda, whatever isn't John, what isn't Cindy, what isn't you. He just keeps working on getting that away from you. And sometimes it's painful, and sometimes it hurts, and sometimes you don't like it, and it's uncomfortable, but God is working on something far better than you ever could conceive or, or imagine. It's on a, we're on a journey of maturation and experience, and experience worketh patience, and patience worketh hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. God wants you to go somewhere. He wants you to be something that he can use for his glory and for his honor. The greatest way that our Walk with God is displayed is in relationships. That's the most clearly revealed area of our lives, the context of our relationships. The greatest pain and the greatest pleasure in your life will be experienced in the context of relationships. So often Faye talks with me about the cross and she says, you got to get it right vertically and you got to get it right horizontally. In other words, that beam up there, one beam stretches upward, doesn't it? And that, that's our relationship to God. Boy, that, that relationship to God is so important. Our prayer life, our devotional life, our walk with God, the way we worship, the way we praise, the way we walk. We walk by faith, not by sight. We walk in the spirit that we might not fulfill the lust of our flesh. We walk in his steps that are ordered by the Lord. We walk uprightly before him. We do those things that are pleasing in his sight. We pray spiritual prayers. We pray in fervency. For the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We pray with intensity. We pray with faith. We pray with hope. We pray with vision. Because that's what God told us to pray with. That's how he told us to pray. In fact, he said pray without ceasing. How do you pray without ceasing? 
I've got to use my mouth to put some food in it sometime. How do I pray when I'm eating? I'm kind of a lose consciousness when I go to sleep. How am I going to pray those hours that I'm asleep? Prayer is a communication with God. It's reciprocal. You know what that means? It means it flows up and it flows down. Sometimes when you pray, you don't feel like nothing comes down. You feel like it's all going up, but you don't feel anything coming down. And most of us, we just get up and say, I'll try that later. We call it a spirit of prayer. When you pray, you have to pray prevailing. Prevailing prayer. But prayer prevailed for him. Have you ever read that that verse about Peter who was in prison? And the Bible said, and prayer was made for him. And prayer, they prevailed in prayer for Peter. Wow, wouldn't it be great if a church could prevail in prayer for their pastor? Wouldn't it be something if God could touch us where a relationship was so good that we prayed one for another? Pray one for another that you may be healed. Pray one for another that you might be delivered. Pray one for another that you might have needs met. Pray one for another that you might encourage one another. Pray one for another to strengthen one another. There's so much in that relationship, vertically and horizontally, and that forms the cross of the Lord Jesus. Put Luke 24, 32 up there for me, please. It was a terrible, terrible time at Calvary when the Lord of glory was suspended between heaven and earth as if he was abandoned by both. And suspended between heaven and earth, there was a gathering around the cross. Calvary was not a pleasant place. Calvary was a place where sinners talked smut. Calvary was a place where gamblers gambled for what they could get out of Jesus. You know, many people look at Jesus like those gamblers did. I just want his robe. I just want his clothes. I just want what he wore. When you start picking and choosing what you want of Jesus, that gambler's attitude, well, I'd like to have this, but I don't want that. Well, Jesus... He loved everybody. I'd like to have that love, but uh, that uh, dying on a cross and not my will thine be done, I I believe I'll leave that. When we start picking and choosing what we want of Jesus, we've got that gambler's attitude that we'll choose the things that are pleasant and reject the things that are not pleasant. Jesus had some pretty stern words to say at times, didn't he? Oh, we love it when he said, Suffer little children to come unto me, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. We love it when Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We love it when Jesus says those wonderful, loving, kind words. But when he said, Oh, ye generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee the wrath to come? Oh, I'll leave that part of it. I just want the sweet Jesus. I just want the loving Jesus. I don't want that that Jesus that purges temples. I don't want that Jesus that tells Pharisees they're like uh, 
sepulchers that are full of dead men's bones. I, I don't like that. I don't, I don't like that. I just like that loving Jesus. You see, when you pick and choose what you want of Jesus, that's what was going on at, at the cross. There were all kind of things that had, that had changed when the cross, at the cross, the disciples had all, Matthew said, all gone away. Matthew, in his gospel, and you know they all wrote about it in their gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all gave accounts. Matthew gives the least account of it. You know why? He wasn't there. I said he wasn't there. The one who tells us the most about the cross is the one that had a nickname. He gave himself a nickname when he wrote his gospel. Sometimes you're kinder when you write about yourself. John wrote about himself and he said, the disciple Jesus loved. The one that was present and the one that wrote the most is the one who was there. The one who gives you the most vivid account of what happened at Calvary was one who was there. I preach a sermon sometimes about when others flee. When others flee. John was one who was there when everybody else had went away. And he called himself the one Jesus loved. The one Jesus loved. You know, sometimes people hang out with you for what they can get off of you. And when they can't get what they want from you anymore, they go away. There's one thing that makes people stay with you. And that's people with a nickname like the one that loved. You see, there are some people that stay with you because they love you. There are other people that stay with you because of what you can do for them. And what you can give them. And when a cross-bearing event comes, the people who are there because of what they can get, they leave. Because cross-bearing is not easy. Did you hear what pastor said? Cross-bearing is not easy. Cross-bearing is tough. Cross-bearing is, is that event that we share with Jesus. Not burden-bearing. The Bible said, bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the loss of Christ. Well, that's, that's one thing to bear people's burdens and help them with their burdens. But burden-bearing is not cross-bearing. Cross-bearing is working for God. It's working for Jesus. It's preaching the gospel. It's teaching that Sunday school class. It's doing that devotional study. It's having that prayer meeting. It's distributing those tracts. It's doing something that helps Jesus bear the cross. It helps Jesus get the message out that he has given himself for the sins of the whole world forevermore. But listen to me. The cross thins out the crowd. We started with a big crowd on Palm Sunday. 
Buddy, we had streets lined with people. We had Jesus on a donkey riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Wow. They got palm branches and put them in the way and took their coats off and strode them in the path. And the whole crowd was hollering one thing, Hoshana, 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 which means praise the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That was on Sunday. Boy, we had a big crowd. You know why? Because they thought he could do something for them. You know what they wanted him to do? They wanted him to go around and tear those tax booths down. Get rid of those publicans. Change the government. Rebel against the government. Establish another kingdom. Another king is riding into town. Praise God we're going to get rid of things like they are. We're going to get something new. And it's going to be better. But they had no idea. But by the end of the next week, the one they said, blessed is he who comes, would be arrested in a garden, carried to Caiaphas' house, beaten and smitten, and taken to Pilate's judgment hall where crowds, instead of crying Hoshana, cried, crucify him, crucify him. Now, his body has been taken down from the cross by Joseph of Arimathea, carried to his newly hewn tomb, and the disciples are dispersed. And two are walking along a road they call a road to Emmaus. The many, many times that I have been there's never been a guide that could take me to Emmaus. It doesn't exist anymore. So it's a road to nowhere now. And these two guys were traveling the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus, which was the village where they lived. In other words, they were going from Jerusalem back home. And their mindset was, it's over. I heard myself that he said, it's finished. We're done for. We placed all of our hopes and all of our ambitions and all of our aspirations upon the hope that this is the Christ. But all of our hope was for naught. We believed in him for nothing. And as they walked along, the Bible said they were joined Aren't you glad that when you feel like quitting and when you've had the most disastrous thing to happen to you in your life, when the most catastrophic thing has occurred and all of your hope is gone, your faith is banished, and you've been destroyed, wiped out, ruined, and you're going back home licking your wounds, feeling sorry for yourself, Embarrassed that you believed in something that wasn't true. And suddenly, 
Jesus shows up. I'm glad he follows me. When I get off that path of sanctification, when I get off that path of ordered steps, when I get off of that path of seeking his will, when I get off of that path of his direction and his intended way and his will, and I wander off from that path, I'm so glad that he doesn't give up on me. I'm glad that he doesn't throw in the towel and have the attitude toward me that I had about him. Hallelujah. He doesn't say, Jerry's finished. He said, Jerry made a detour and I've got to go after him. And he went after these disciples. One of them's name was Cleopas. And when Jesus showed up, he said, what are you talking about? What you talking about? What does it matter what I'm talking about? Because your tongue is attached to your heart. And if your tongue's talking about quitting, evidently you got heart trouble. So Jesus asked them, what are you talking about? And they said, are you a stranger here? You don't know? You haven't read the newspaper? My Lord, where you been? Don't you watch the news? There was a man named Jesus. And we wandered around for three years with him. We watched him heal lepers. We watched him raise the dead. We watched him as he preached the sermon on the mount. We watched him. We helped him feed the 5,000. We, we've been with him on the boat when he calmed the wind and calmed the waves. We've been with him, but he's now dead. He's finished. He's in the grave. And it's over. And he began to tell them the word of God. That meal that was in the barrel. The word of God. A sheep as a lamb is led to the slaughter. Surely he's borne our sorrows. Surely he hath borne our affliction, our pain. Surely he hath he was bruised for our iniquity, wounded for our transgressions. And the Bible said they reached the house, still didn't know, still didn't know. Their focus was so on the situation and the surroundings, they didn't recognize that Jesus was with them in the mess. Could that be your situation today? He's been there all along, but you've been so tied up in how bad things are that you hadn't even recognized that he's with you. And the Bible said they went in the house, and he went in with them, and they sat down, and the Bible said when he broke the bread, they realized the Lord. You know what I believe they found, Brother Jerry? I believe when they looked at him and he broke that bread, they saw those nail prints in his hands. Oh, we used to sing, and we shall know him by the nail prints in his hands. I want to tell you, when they saw and realized that was the Lord Jesus, the Bible said, and they got up, and what did they do? They returned back to Jerusalem. 
Why? Because they had a message to tell. They had a news to break. My Lord, they said these words. They got up, verse 33, and they got up at once and returned to Jerusalem. And there they found the eleven and those that were with them assembled together. Notice the togetherness, relationships. Listen to these relationships. Luke 30, 24, 32 said, They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while we talked with him on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Now they say in verse 33, they go back. They went back to, the, to Jerusalem, and there they found the eleven those that were with them, notice those pronouns. They got up at once, and there they found the eleven, and those that were with them assembled together. So it's safe to say this, that the revelation of Jesus was confirmed not in the context of their conversation with him, but in the context of their conversation with each other. Wow. That's why around church you hear slogans like praying for you. Slogans like I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Slogans like in all things we're made more than conquerors. You hear that amongst believers. And that's where the revelation of Jesus is most advanced is in these Things we say one to another. It's important how we talk one to another. You see, in church cultures, we, we say the, those most common was, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I know in whom I have believed, and so forth. But even Jesus needed disciples. Jesus needed a team. Jesus needed a team. Jesus needed trained workers. Because when he turned that work over to them, he gave them something to make ministry effective. Come on, Connor. To make ministry effective. You know what makes ministry effective? The Holy Ghost. And relationships was what it was all about. When Jesus was suspended on that cross, he looked down and he saw his mother. What mother would have to endure what went on at a cross. What mother would stand there watching her son die on a cross? And Jesus looked down at her and he said this to her. He said, Mother, behold thy son. And he said, Son, behold thy mother. And he said, Take care of her. You see, the cross is about relationships. The cross is best observed when we take care of one another, when we care one for another. What are you saying here, Pastor? I'm saying Jesus said to John, the disciple that he loved, he said, take care of my mother. And he looked down at John, and John was the only disciple that was there. He was there. Now, notice this. Jesus did not fuss, and neither was he angry, because the other disciples were not there. 
We never see him address that at all. You know why he didn't address it? Because he knew that on the day of Pentecost, their boldness issue would be solved. He knew that on the day of Pentecost, that boldness issue would be solved. That'd take care of itself. He didn't fuss one bit because those people weren't present. He didn't even get mad at Judas. He didn't have a harsh thing to say about Judas. He simply told him, go and do thy work and do it quickly. And he went out. You see, it would have been easy to hate Judas. And if you and I were on that cross dying, we would have something to say about Judas. That sorry, low down betrayer, that child of the devil, that low-down skunk. Brother, everything we could call him, we would call him. We would hate Judas. But Jesus never hated Judas. He needed John to get him through the cross. He needed Judas to get him to the cross. You see, don't waste hatred on people that brings you to a place where God wants you to be. It's easy to become bitter at people who mistreat you. It's easy to become hateful and cynical and stoic toward people that have injured you. It's easy to get like that. But the cross will temper that bitterness in your heart. It'll take that away from you and you can be like Jesus and you won't hate Judas. You won't hate Judas. There's some of you that are in this room today that need to do what Jesus did. He looked at those people that were killing him and he told the Lord not to lay that sin upon them. You see, Bitterness builds up in your heart when you have an unforgiving spirit. An unforgiving spirit. Sometimes grudges can last for decades. Sometimes grudges can stay with you. And I want to tell you who they hurt. They hurt you a whole lot more than they hurt that person. Because you're the one that goes around with all of that in your heart. It stops up your ears so you can't hear good things. Stops up your eyes so you can't see the goodness of God. It'll slow your steps till you don't want to assemble with God's people. Come on, somebody. See, people with an unforgiving spirit, when you say, I'm praying for you, they'll resent that. They don't want to get around where somebody's talking about how God delivered them or saved them or healed their body or did some. They resent that. They don't want to be a part of that because the bitterness in them makes them not want to be a part of that. There are people that can recount every word of a conversation that's 40 years old. I've had them tell, I can remember the smell that was in the air. 
I can remember how, what it smelled like in that room when she said what she did. Come on, somebody. Some people can revivor, remember so vividly that they can re, even remember what it smelled like when the injury was done. Wow. See, when you harbor that stuff in your heart, decade after decade, and you sit in that bitterness is a cancer that will eat you up. Are you hearing this, Pastor? It'll eat you. There's only one cure for it. Only one. At the cross, where the burden of my heart rolled away. At the cross, where forgiveness was given to all who prayed and requested it. At the cross where victory was won for every one of us, where our sins were nailed, where Jesus bearing his own body the price of our redemption. Grace, mercy, there was great, and grace was free. Oh, the wondrous grace that was given to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. At Calvary. Jesus said, remember a lot of things, but the most prominent things he said, don't forget, he said, remember Calvary. Remember Calvary. In fact, Paul said, I always carry around in my body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Brother, if you can bear around in your body Calvary every day that you live and you walk by the energy of Calvary's cross, then you can have joy unspeakable and full of glory. Pastor, how can I have joy? I'd love to have joy. I'd love to have peace that passes all understanding. But I want to tell you, it's available. It's available. But it doesn't depend upon God. It depends upon you. And when you trust what God did at Calvary's cross, peace, unequaled peace, can be yours. Joy, unspeakable joy, can be yours. A lady came to our parsonage one night, and she was just, just a nervous wreck. She said, there's a place in the center of my head it wouldn't burn any worse than if you took a live coal from out of a stove and laid it on top of my head. It's burning so badly. She said, I am tormented by it day and night. What'd you do, Pastor? I prayed in the name of Jesus. I said, I prayed in the name of Jesus of Jesus and the healing and the deliverance that came to that woman in the name of Jesus in that parsonage. We used to sing, I was there when it happened and I guess I ought to know. I wish I would have had a camera running so I could play it for you this morning and you could see a face that was wrinkled and a face that was mangled and suddenly the smile that came upon that face. And she made this testimony. She said, that's the first peace that I've felt in my life since I was a little girl. First peace. Thank God they call him the Prince of Peace. 
And I want to tell you, you'll never know peace until you know Jesus and until you've been to the cross. He is a peace speaker. He's a peace giver. And He'll give you peace today. Stand with me, please, all over this house. Come up here, Jerry. I'm sure all of you have got the text and the 411s. We've been praying without ceasing for Jerry ever since we heard the news. He was hurting when he got up, was it Wednesday morning? He went up to the emergency room and they told him they'd found a mass on his pancreas. And the mass was the size of a lemon. He's going in the morning to Noonan, Georgia, to Cancer Centers of America to determine whether it is or isn't. And my God, yes. Yes. My God. My God. My God, the God I serve, the God I worship, the God I love, the God I intend to see one day, in His name, there's healing, deliverance, a miracle that will astound doctors and others who look at your record and see your chart. God, in Jesus' name, I lay my hand upon Jerry Bowman. And in Jesus' name, I believe you, O God, to work a work. And I believe you, O God, to take your hand of healing and lay your hand upon Jerry Bowman this morning. God, let the healing virtue of the power of the cross of Calvary, the blood of Jesus and the wounds upon his back are sufficient for the healing of Jerry Bowman's body. God, I pray that that hand, that outstretched arm and that mighty hand that has brought deliverance down through the years would bring deliverance to Jerry. God, in his mind, I pray, O oh Lord, that you'd give a peace right now. Give a calmness. Give a confidence. Give an assurance that my life is hid with God in Christ. I am who God says I am. I believe God's Word. I believe that it's available. Healing is available. And in Jesus' name, I accept my healing by the Word of God. Right now, in Jesus' name, I thank Him and praise Him for doing a work in my body. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Would you just lift your hands right now and worship the Lord and praise Him for touching Jerry Bowman? I thank you in advance, God, for touching his body. We'll live for you. We'll serve you. We'll love you, God, and we'll testify of your goodness. In Jesus' name, the rest of my life will be a testimony. In Jesus' name. Going to be my testimony. Going to be my testimony. Come here, Amy. I remember the day when she called me up and said, Pastor, got a brain tumor. 
Remember the day. May not see. Said you may not ever see again. prayed over me my church prayed over me she said the first doctor told her he said you'll never see again or possibly here wow and I knew if I went to another doctor and got another opinion I felt totally different when I left there and I totally different this doctor wasn't mentioning my hearing and I said something don't seem right why are you not telling me I'm gonna not hear or see and he said well that's where the work of your prayer and trust in God and that he's in my hands. That's where that prayer came in. The doctor told her, that's where that prayer came in. Yeah. Amen. He said you were a what? Miracle patient. A miracle patient. Praise God. Came out and told your family to get on their knees and pray because you might not come out. I wasn't responding. Wasn't responding. And they, he woke me up. I remember him being on top, right on top of me, Amy, get up, the doctor. And I woke up and I was, is my hair okay? That was all I worried about. Is my hair okay? And I told my family, she is fine. <laughs> told your family she's fine. Praise God. You believe God answers prayer? Yes. He answers prayer. He really does. Praise God. Lisa, we've been praying for Pat ever since we found out that she had cancer. And on Wednesday night, I was doing prayer requests, and I said, let's remember Pat Wilkinson tonight in this prayer. And Faye said, oh, you haven't heard? I said, no, I haven't heard. What? Said her last uh, test, she was cancer-free. Cancer free. Go in tomorrow for another scan. So you're going to be scanned and you're going to be scanned tomorrow. Well, I believe I serve a God. And in Jesus' name, Amy, in Jesus' name, Jerry, in Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. God, I pray that you'd keep your hand upon these two people as they go tomorrow. God, I know there's some anxiety, but I know that you're a God who casts out all fear. In perfect love, there's a casting out of fear. In Jesus' name, God, keep your hand upon Amy and Jerry. And God, give them a successful event tomorrow at the hospital. God, touch them and may your grace and your Holy Spirit that I preached about today, go with them and strengthen them and encourage them and give them, O oh God, victory as we walk in your steps in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Now I want these people that we prayed for to pray with me and stretch my hand out this way towards you. That whatever you're going through and whatever your need is, whatever your something is that you brought to this service, there are some of you that have lingering illnesses and lingering, you battle with disease. James, I'm glad to see you in church today with us, buddy. God bless you. He's had back trouble so bad. Today's the first day he could walk. Carlos, lay your hands on him back there. The Bible I preach out of said these signs, these signs 
These signs shall follow them that believe. They shall lay their hands upon the sick and they shall recover. They shall recover. They shall recover. If you believe that, I want you to press your hand right this way right now. And these people who need an answer to prayer are going to pray for you because out of their praying for you, God's going to grant something for them. God, in Jesus' name, with all the faith that we can garner, with all of the energy and all the hope that we have, God, we pray in Jesus' name that your power and your spirit would touch people in this congregation whose hand is stretched this way. And God, as that person has extended their hand toward this pastor and these people, I pray, Lord, that a healing connection would take place. And I pray that a healing waters would flow. And I pray that power and virtue and energy and strength and the balm of Gilead would flow and touch the bodies of people that are expressing faith right now. Thank you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Take your hand, lay it over on that person beside you. Lay it on them. In Jesus' name, I lay my hand on this person. Your word said these signs will follow them that believe. I believe, and in Jesus' name, I lay my hands upon them, and I expect healing, and I expect deliverance, and a miracle for them in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Everybody say in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Can you say it one more time? In Jesus' name. Wow, just once more. In Jesus' name. Oh, there's power in that name, isn't there? Glory to God. Now for 30 seconds, would you give the best praise that you've got? Would you just clap your hands and lift up your head to God and say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Bless your name, Jesus. We worship you, Lord. We praise you. And we give you glory. And we give you honor. And we give you praise. You're our God. And we're your people. And we worship you today. And we give you glory. 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 We give you honor. We give you praise. We lift up our hands unto you, O God. And we lift up and exalt your name and magnify your name today, O God. Blessed be the Lamb of 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 God. Thank you, God, today for what you've done in this service. Thank you for prayers that change things. And thank you for an intercessor who ever intercedes for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that right now you're in the presence of the Father interceding for Amy and interceding for Jerry, interceding for people in this congregation. Oh, God, I thank you for that intercessor. And I ask you, God, that we'll get a good report in Jesus' name. God, go with us, O oh Lord, from this house of worship to our homes and our families and give us a great day together today, O oh Lord. We'll celebrate, O oh Lord, your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.